the greatest symbol of the uh, goddess is the lotus and the, it's it is so because the lotus grows in the swamp in the mud and that's that's what ferocity is for me the the dirt and the mud um the chaos the ambiguity the unknown uh, that which doesn't have labels and then out of that the pleasure is the lotus you know the sensuality the creativity the beauty um and this pleasure has nothing whatsoever to do with being in service and and this is this is where the divine feminine has been hijacked um because we now as women particularly when i work with women i can tell you more difficult than ferocity for women is pleasure i'm julie clare and this is the podcast creative at the wheel artists and creative professionals thrive in unconventionality they reinvent themselves and find their way through impossible situations here we get to have deep dive conversations on their adventures let's jump in my guest today is padma menon padma is a dancer and a teacher of dance and has studied indian philosophy yoga and martial arts under traditional lineages She's talking to me from Canberra, Australia, where she currently lives and runs Moving Archetypes Studio. Very excited to talk to Padma. Um she hails from a matrilineal family of writers, activists, and philosophers. Ritual, temple retreats, and cont- contemplative discussions were ever present in her family. She was a child prodigy and began her dance career at the age of 9 in India. She was a leading dancer in the Kuchipudi style of dance, which is an ancient temple dance tradition. And when she moved to Australia in the 90s, she developed one of the first professional non-western dance companies that had a national and international performance profile. She then moved to the Netherlands and created significant contemporary works which eschewed colonial interpretations of contemporary aesthetics. She also developed a center for dance in India which helped women to live their full and sacred presence in their lives. Wow. Welcome in Padma. Thank you Julie. It's such a pleasure and honor to be here. Uh, I'm so glad we can meet like this. You and me in New Mexico, you in Australia. Um Yeah. <laughs> pretty cool. I I want to start just by giving us some sense of what your uh tradition of dance is you know what what you dance and what what you were what you learned uh i just love to begin there if you can if you can jump in yeah so um i the the you know what i call the mother tongue for me is a dance uh, style called kuchipudi which is a an ancient temple dance style and what is um special about the style is that it uh, was performed by male priests in temples and you know i'll explain a little bit about how it is connected to the you know the more the divine feminine philosophy and tradition that i really work in now uh but uh i met the my teacher guru vampatichana satyam he is a legend or was a legend sadly he uh, died in 2012 but he was a legend in this dance style he was a great revolutionary in the style he introduced women uh, to the style it was an all male style but interestingly the men were dancing as women so the the significant characters in the dance were women 
And I think as because of men dancing it, there was a greater freedom in the feminine portrayals and the style. There was I just found it was such a refreshing and powerful style to do in a woman's body. Um, so that's what I specialized in. I worked with him for 15 years. I was performing in his company all over India. Uh, and I continued with that when I came to Australia as well. The, the link between this dance and the divine feminine is, of course, in the ancient goddess traditions, there is an invitation to become woman. So it was a, a tradition where everybody practices to become women. And so male priests, uh, you know, finding their feminine and also really taking on female portrayals in the ritual dance was very common. And it, in still in many parts of India, this is still practiced. So there were all these different elements in there, which has led me to where I am today. My goodness, of course, I have so many questions, but I want to really get clear from the beginning. Was he comfortable teaching you as a woman? Yes, he was. He, In fact, he uh, was heavily criticized for introducing women, particularly because the style was quite, um, you know, quite... Uh, open and free uh, in India by that time, you know, uh, classical dance had become a very much of a middle class uh, expression and and uh, skill, and so there was this sense of this 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 really vibrant dance style, which had this very open, I would say, even explosive portrayals of the feminine. So I was very lucky to learn it in those early times. I do think uh, the feminine has been tamed over time in, in this dance style. But I was very lucky that I came at the beginning of that transition and I got to uh, have some of that really luscious feminine portrayals in the style. Wow. And I'm, you know, I have a little bit of shock in that I hadn't heard of this in terms of teaching and helping men experience women or become women as they were dancing in their, is it sexuality? Is it, is it, what is that practice? What was that practice? Does that still go on for men? I mean, in that dance form? So, yeah. Uh, yeah, Julie. So, you know, this is uh, the ancient goddess-led tradition. Yes. And there are, there are similar traditions across the world. Uh, you know, many of these ancient goddess traditions shared a lot of characteristics across the world. The, the feminine, I mean, you know, we the, the problem is we've got to speak about it in the language that's available to us now, which is very much the language of duality. So when we say feminine, we it's, it's an exclusion-based language. You know, when we say something, we exclude a lot of other things. Um, so the feminine here was the all-inclusive experience of reality. So it was reality without labels. Um, without division, without fragmentation, beyond language, because language only starts, a, a spoken language or word, as they say. Um, perhaps I'll say, uh, you know, there's a very beautiful saying in the Vedas, which is one of the oldest texts in Indian philosophy, and it says that three quarters of the word is hidden in the cave. So word, language, or form is always only a quarter of reality and three quarters of reality, the cave. So that's the body and that's the feminine. So the feminine is all of it, but we stick only to the cave, I mean, to the word and the feminine is the cave and the doorway of the cave. 
So the feminine was the all-inclusive space. But in reality, the feminine was the female body because the female body is an inclusive space. We give birth to men and you know boys and girls. Um, there is also an aspect of non-linearity in the female body. We know that we have our menstrual cycles, we have childbirth, you know, it's not a very linear body at all, the female body, you know, we have menstruation so that there, uh, and menopause. So there are lots of times where there is this linear time in a woman's body is radically broken. And so the female body is the signal of the goddess in reality. And everybody was invited to come into their feminine. But of course, as women, they, they were, you know, let's say they were a bit deeper in the cave um, than masculine bodies. But the masculine is also, in another sense, it's the mind. It's the way in which our mind controls the body. The mind is like language, which is a creation of the mind. The mind works in dualities, good and bad, black and white, male and female. So that's also, that's also masculine. So there's multiple ways in which these words work in the goddess tradition. And this invitation to become woman is a very ancient invitation. There is, there is evidence way back, for example, in, in, the, in the side of the world that I come from, the Indus Valley, which is about 5,000 years old. There are artifacts where you have men who have, you know, you can see that they've attached breasts and they're wearing the, the female uh, dresses. So these are the priests, they think are the priests who were in this tradition, who were this, uh, in this invitation to become women. And there are still living traditions in India where men perform ritual dances, where they dress up as women and they actually, uh, well, for want of a better word, they channel the goddess, they channel the feminine, the divine feminine. So this is a continuing practice in many parts of India, even today. I'm so glad I asked you about that, Padma. Um, so much to unpack, but one of the things I want to ask you is from the very beginning then, would you say this dance form is sacred? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, everything about the practice, it's not just the stories that make it sacred. And this has been my lifelong investigation is what is it that makes this dance sacred? Um, is it the story? Uh, is it just because we're dancing about the gods? But actually, it's got nothing to do with the narrative. It's really the form itself. But you need to actually approach the form with that understanding. Um, you know, Julie, the problem with anything that comes into form, the word, you know, the doorway of the cave, is that the mind will grab it. Um, we need form because that's the only way, you know, when you are manifest, when you have a body, you need a form in order to work, in order to practice because you, you, you can only transform through an embodied practice. So you need something. But the problem with any form is that the mind makes it into a technique. That's just the way the mind behaves. And so we, you need to have a real intelligence, a real insight, uh, a kind of um, revelation, you know, the, a, a way of knowing what is revelation, of knowing how to hold revelation, um, that makes that form into this kind of sacred practice. So a practice doesn't become sacred just because it's speaking about gods. It becomes sacred because of the state of being that you bring to it. It becomes sacred because of your reasons. You know, why are you here? What is your motivation for coming here? 
um, and it becomes sacred about the fact that you can, uh, you are able to recognize revelation, you're able to hold revelation, that it's actually a living thing. So it's not a technique that you master, that you memorize, and that you kind of cumulatively build on. That's a different thing. But a, a sacred practice is something that is always alive, every day, every moment. And for that, you need a constellation. I always call it a practice constellation. You need, firstly, you need a state of being that is willing to do that. That is that, you know, you say, I am here because I'm prepared to do this because this is what I'm looking for. That's the start. And that's the soil in which the practice grows. So any, any other kind of constellation makes it into something else. Nothing wrong with that. But I think that if you want an alchemical practice of the divine feminine, you have to recognize that it's a practice constellation. And when you say constellation, would you say that has something to do with the word coherence? Yes, like, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like an integrity, you know, it's, yeah. uh, it's so that's where I say, picking and choosing different things from different um, different aspects, it makes for an interesting experience, but the mind loves interesting experiences. And then you're really not so much in the body, but you're kind of illustrate, you're using the body to illustrate what the mind is um, indulging itself in. And, and that's fine. I mean, you know, we need, we need those moments too, but here you're going, you're really allowing the body to lead. And that's a very different thing. You allow your body to lead in the practice. That's a really, really different thing. And it's so, not the way in which we live our lives usually. No, but my goodness, how exciting is this to talk with you? This is uh, my hope through painting as well is that we leave that and enter another world where we are being led by something altogether different. Um, I, I mm -hmm. want to get back to you when you said, um, well, there is this knowing and there's this being, I hear definitely embodiment, right? Embodiment. Yes. So it's not just in the yes. head. How big of a shift was it for you to become a teacher from being the dancer? And, and, and this has to do with uh, passing on the knowledge about this and the being in it, you know, I'm just curious as a teacher, how much of this understanding comes directly through the movement and also how much people also study. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really good question. And in fact, I was just talking about this with uh, an ex colleague of mine a couple of days ago about transmission. Um, you know, when you, when you learn, as I did, I learned a lot of it was one-on-one -on -one with my, with my guru, my teacher. And the interesting thing is he never really taught in the sense we understand teaching. So it wasn't like he ever sat down and taught me steps. It was a very different kind of teaching. And I, I find it even difficult to find words for it because it was almost like you intuited what he was, what was in his mind, what was in his consciousness. And there was a knowing, there was a kind of way in which you manifested um, what he wanted or whether it was what he wanted or what he held in his body. I don't think it was even so much of him there, but it was like that dance practice in his body. You, you were able to manifest in some way. Um, and there was this incredible feeling of inhabit inhabiting a tradition 
a body that was very, very ancient. And this is not a sentimental thing. It took me years to process that because it was such an intense relationship. I was very young. I think uh, that was a good thing because I had very little filters. Um, and so it took me, you know, a long, many years after that to process what had happened in that in that transmission relationship. Um, and when I started teaching initially, you know, I was I was in the West, I was in Australia. And so it was very much mostly a technical, you know, the usual approach of teaching the technique. But I think I inevitably really brought in that whole element of transmission that I had in my body from my own training. But as I, you know, went further, as I grew older, I really began to focus much more on what else is going on here. Um, it, that isn't just about imparting a technique, you know, what else is going on here? And that's really where I, you know, I was understanding much when I used the word constellation, because that's really says everything about this goddess tradition, that it's not linear. It's no matter which aspect of this you look at, it's a constellation. The body is in constellation. The teaching is a constellation because it consists of the teacher who has a lived experience of revelation. Now, if a teacher doesn't have that, the, the constellation doesn't exist. So as a teacher, you need to uh, you need to have a lived experience, and there are, you know, this is recognized in in um, many of the ancient Indian philosophies. You know, they call it the direct experience, and then you are able to hold that space for somebody who's coming, and the and the person that is coming is ready and prepared and open. And so, what do we mean by revelation? We means that something we don't already know. Obviously, otherwise, it's not a revelation. So, if you come in already with a roadmap. Uh, you're not going to be ready for revelation. Um, so when people tell me um, this is, you know, I, I work individually with women from all over the world. And sometimes when they're talking to me in our first first conversation we have, and they say, you know, I'm looking for, uh, uh, for example, I'm working with this beautiful uh, young visual artist who said, I, I'm really looking to learn more about the divine feminine so I can um, inform that in my own arts practice. And, and my invitation to her was, can you come in just with without a roadmap? Can you come in just really openly and see why the goddess has called you and where that might take you? And she was absolutely prepared for that. But that's the revelation. So that is that is an important, the intentionality of the person coming in. And then at every step of the practice, really staying open to the revelation. And this is really important, not going into mastery, not going into uh, technique. You know, I want to get this form right. I want to master this, but really being in every moment in that space of what is being revealed here to me that is beyond this movement. What is this movement holding? So the movement is always the doorway of the cave and every movement in this tradition has the potential to take you into the cave if you allow that, if you can just get out of the way and allow that to happen. Well, I want to ask you about the calling, but I, I, I'm holding on to this question of how normal are you for a, 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 someone, a, child, <laughs> prod, a child prodigy at nine uh, and a mystical being who's talking about transmission, which I absolutely love, and that, that it's a process that you've been filling 
you know, stepping into this over the years. I hear you speaking to that development, but also the the necessity for that to be uh, someone who can really pass this on and yeah, and bring that into your teachings, this this embodiment, this transmission, this lived um, reality. When you were a prodigy, was it anything to do with this kind of an ancient or traditional dance form or what? Just can you bridge us a little bit to who you were when you started to how you, it sounds like you started teaching in Australia, but maybe your, your um, entrance into this sacred dance was that, how old were you and yeah, how did you get there from being a child prodigy in what kind of dance? Yeah. Uh, so I, you know, it wasn't, I, I didn't make the decision. Um, you know, my family had a lot of, they were very artistic. They were writers, not dancers. They were musicians. They were writers, activists, very political. My mother was very interested in dancing, but, you know, there's a lot of, in India, there's a lot of, um, you know, people from respectable families don't dance was once, um, you know, once the thing. So she didn't get an opportunity to dance. And I think she held this yearning very strongly in her consciousness. And and so she wanted me to dance. But obviously there was this ancient calling through her. She's a deeply spiritual woman herself. She's very, you know, she's deeply ritual. I think she was very mystical I mean, she she's still alive. She is very mystical. She has had experiences of, you know, very mystical experiences, which she used to share with us when we were younger. Um, and so there was this sense in which these experiences were not out of the ordinary where when I grew up. And in a, in a way, it's so in India. I don't know how much of that is still alive at the moment. But certainly, you know, when I was growing up, there was a sense, there was this beautiful thing in India where mysticism, you know, could be a possibility. You know, it was a real possibility. It wasn't something that was odd. Um, and so, you know, growing up and, and then meeting teachers like my, my teacher, who is, he's, who is very spiritual, mystical, he was a man of few words. Um, and, you know, the way in which he communicated was was very different. It was, it, like I said, it was a very non-verbal kind of communication. And, and yet, you know, he held this whole body of knowledge in his body and somehow it permeated and, and transmitted to me. Um, how, how old are you when you met him? I When I met him, so I started dancing around the age of seven. I started performing age of nine. I met him when I was about 10 or 11. Uh, wow. And then I was with him for the next 15 years wow. or so. Yes. So it was, I was very young and um, I think, yes, I was, uh, you know, a kind, maybe a, not a, not the usual kind of child. And I felt I had a bit of this double life where, you know, I went to school and I tried to do all the usual things and um, I was, you know, academically very bright and did all the things, but I, I definitely felt I had this duality in my life and that continued very long time, you know, trying to sign up to the ordinary life. And so many women do this. Um, and this is why I, I just know, you know, how women try and live their lives. Um, so I, you know, I tried to do all the right things, but then life just completely took a break when I was about 20, 21, I was this perfect person doing everything really well. And then I had an unconventional relationship, which totally, um, 
you know, disconnected me. So I was I was locked down. I had to accept an arranged marriage. I had to leave India for Australia because of that marriage. And that was a real point at which this continuity, this this culture, the philosophy, everything that I absolutely loved and totally resonated with was just gone from one day to the next. Um, and I was in a culture that I knew nothing about and I didn't really want to be. I didn't want to leave India, so I didn't want to really be here. Um, but, you know, and then I went back to the dancing. It was really the dancing that has always allowed me to find a way of being that integrated that consciousness that I think I, I think of my ancient past, my ancient self. You know, I think all of us carry the self that is very ancient, particularly women, this disconnection to the divine feminine, which we have to remember, and we know this now, is pre-patriarchal religions anywhere in the world. It's the oldest way of being or the oldest way of um what can I say, the oldest way of understanding reality and practicing reality. So this is our ancient self. And that is the way in which I lived uh, available and present to that is through the dance. And that kept me going. So, yes, so you I've went, had so my... all the way, you basically, you were kind of pushed out of India and you were away from your guru yes. and your 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 yes. relationship there um, with, with him yes. as teacher, my goodness, yes. has, have you, has that healed? Cause that was a long time ago. I'm thinking, has that healed with your family? What's your, how does, how do you relate to your family at this point? Does it? Um, yes. Yeah. Yes, it has, because I, I don't think any of us could have behaved in any other way that, you know, we are all, we all inhabit also a kind of material reality with its own paradigms and rules and, uh, however imperfect it is, and it is terribly imperfect because we we have cut ourselves away from that wholeness. So anything that we do, um, any any sort of paradigms we construct here, whether it's a family, marriage, gender, whatever it is, it's always going to be imperfect. And and so I understand. I can I see that none of us could have behaved in any other way. Um, and so yes, so I don't I don't you know, I'm, and I'm not saying that I'm. Uh, angelic in any way but it's like it's it's accepting the reality and you know just thinking well that's that's just what we did what was possible and I've had to have the same thing to myself you know I've I've since I, I got remarried and that didn't work out it was again a very difficult uh, you know difficult relationship um, and I, I was a single mother for a very long time and you know you 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 also as as that as a woman as a woman's life if you don't really look at how reality is, I think women will have the hardest time because <laughs> there's so much uh, of it that is expected of women that is so crippling that if, if, if as women we don't recognize how imperfect those paradigms are, uh, we are absolutely going to cripple ourselves. So that's something I've really learned is to be very realistic about what those expectations are, what those promises are, and the fact that most of them are set up for us to fail. And there you are, there you are in Australia and you've been removed kind of from India in that life. How, what was this, was this a time of prayer? You're in this new marriage. Did you, what was your road 
through that? Were you, did you quickly surface with a straight back and find your way back into dance in your own way? Or what, what, how did that breakdown kind of serve you? Breakdown meaning a big change of the way things were right into this new order. What do you think the role that has played over time for you becoming who you are as a teacher and a a woman in the world? You've also pursued philosophy and martial arts and all these things that how important looking back do you think that being thrown out of the nest was? Um, it's it's truly made me who I am, uh, Julie, and it's made me to do this work that I'm doing now. Uh, I have to be in the real world. I ha- I know I I have lived the life I think uh, that many women would have lived across the world, doesn't matter which culture you come from. There are so many things, you know, that I just find having lived and worked now in many different parts of the world. I lived in the Netherlands, back in India again, back in Australia, and I've worked a little bit in the United States. So I just, what I've seen wherever I've worked is that women's lives have more things in common um, than things that are different across the world. Um, And, you know, being in that marriage, I was in a situation where at times I feared for my life. I feared for the safety of my children. Uh, but what kept me going again was this practice. I remember I was invoking Goddess Kali at the time. I was in the Netherlands. I was away from family and friends. I didn't really have a grip of the knowledge. But the interesting thing, and this is the whole non-linearity of the practice, in the worst period of my life, the, the greatest thing that flourished was my dancing. So some of the, the deepest works I've, I've made, I've made in the Netherlands. And those were the works that really got me to the heart of the sacredness of my tradition. And I was invoking Goddess Kali at the time. And I remember one night sitting in my prayer room at home in complete despair. And there was this um, absolute blackness. And this experience of Goddess Kali I hear from many women when I practice with them. is very similar experience. I can't explain that blackness to you. And the blackness was also moving. It was like this, the deepest night, but there was this incredible movement in this blackness. And and I just absolutely, what came to me is that there are more possibilities than I'm being being presented with. There was this absolute conviction of infinite possibilities. And, And I just thought, right, okay, there is, um, and, and it just opened me up to, being what else is here other than what people are telling me I can do, what services are telling me, what what society is telling me is the right thing. And the minute I opened myself to that, I there were resources, there were people completely unconventional. And then people will judge you for it. They will they will judge you for the decisions you've made and the choices you've made. But you know what? It didn't matter at all because I was able to navigate my way out of that safely with, with myself, for myself, for my children. And I just know from that experience that that infinite possibilities available in any moment, if you free yourself from the shackles of the paradigms that you've been given, uh, and that's the moment that you can, and that's what this practice is about, is that those possibilities are intimately personal and they are just absolutely right for you. They are not the one size fits all. And that is only available when you can liberate yourself. And that's what I call unconditional freedom. So when I talk to women, I practice about unconditional freedom. That's that. And for that, you know, you, you don't need anybody's permission. 
You don't need anybody. You don't need to sit at the feet of a guru to be taught all that. You will find that truth from within yourself. And that's for me, that unconditional freedom. Unconditional freedom. And Mm -hmm. would you say your relationship to that continues to change over the years, this unconditional freedom as your, you know, your circumstances change? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is where I say that the practice is always living. And one of the things that we have really become conditioned to is that, you know, this thing called enlightenment is like a certificate that somebody gives you enlightenment and then you're there. But enlightenment, if you know, for want of a better word, but enlightenment or what I call unconditional freedom is a practice. And it's it always changes because we change. Consciousness is always moving. And again, you know, this idea, which I think comes very much from patriarchal spirituality of this stillness and silence. Um, I think these are words that bring us to a certain um what can I say, a certain paralysis. But for me, what I found in this practice, what I found in my own experience is that what's more useful and what's more real is that it's, it's, it's a movement. It's a practice. It's something that lives, something that shifts. And unconditional freedom is not, again, it's not that you there is a formula and then you just find it and you apply that formula. It's a practice and it changes every minute. And I, you know, I totally get that. And I, when I'm listening to you, I'm imagining um, a lot of the people that I work with, you know, we go through periods of time when there is breakdown and what shows up for them Mm -hmm. and what role does creativity have for them in those times. And I hear so much creativity in this unscripted path and Mm -hmm. uh, practice with the dance. Um, That being said, I guess I'm a little curious uh, when you've really blown it, when you've really gone, oh my gosh, I completely wasn't within this tradition I was thinking, or, you know, Mm -hmm. when have you stumbled and realized it, whether with teaching or your own, because I think that's also part of our path, right? Is living in that deep creativity is, uh, when we realize we've, we're kind of off. Yes. Yes. And that's again, a a really powerful question, Julie, because, um, you know, there, there, there's, uh, there's our story. Uh, we, we have a, a story uh, as women, as, you know, whatever we are, the roles that we play in our lives. And there's, you know, the, the, sometimes that story breaks down as, as has happened to me. And yes, I've absolutely been in, in deep crisis. Um, and there's, there's a level at which we need help to if the, you know, we need help to patch up that story again. And that's what I call therapy and counseling. And there's a real role for at that level of your story to have that. That's a different thing. The, the practice itself is, is much more of a philosophical, spiritual practice. And I'll say, I'll say that because I feel like when many of these um, Indian traditions came to the West, there is a sense where we started calling it therapy and healing, which for me is slightly problematic because that the healing is an, there is a certain roadmap there. You know, what, how do you know you're healed? Because you already have a roadmap then. You have a certain kind of um, aim or a certain goal 
um, when you think of therapy and 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 healing. And absolutely, that is important because you know there there is a level in which we live our lives in our stories. You know, we need to function. We need to do the things we need to do. Um, this is a different level because here it's you can't you to start the practice you have to be like i said you have to be willing to give up the roadmap and the starting of the practice is uh, stepping into the heroic self or the self which is called the veera which is the self that you know in the practice it is said the 16 year old self and that doesn't mean you're actually 16 right. but it means yeah it means the youth you know it means adventure it means curiosity it means a sense of abandon, sense of playfulness. Now, you can't do that if you are fractured at the level of your your story. You know, if you're if you're really in a crisis, if I'm worried about my personal safety, if I'm worried about the safety of my children, I cannot. This is not the practice for that time, and and the practice says that. You know, so even the practice of yoga, for example, was really to actually bring you to that sense of where you're ready for stepping into the, you know, the Vera self. Um, and so there, there are things you do before you get to that Vera self, which is in the realm of therapy and healing. So I have absolutely gone to counseling therapy and other things where I have recognized that what I need is I'm really fractured at that sense, which is, you know, not really possible for me even to approach the dancing in that in that way in that in that level of that philosophical spiritual inquiry right and i know that you know in a sense i know it's a, it's a kind of an artificial separation but i think it's important to do that because it it wasn't meant to be therapy and healing in the sense that we have really um assumed in many of these traditions when it's come across to the west there is an assumption and I think that sometimes is dangerous as well. What is the, so when you say that, what comes to me is the word ecstasy. Uh, what does it have to do with ecstasy? Because that to me is not in that necessarily healing paradigm. <laughs> I don't know when I speak that, if that's even true, but that's what comes up. Things like ecstasy or uh, fulfillment, or does that have a place in your in the dance? Yes. Um, so, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I'm careful again about the word ecstasy. I mean, these, you know, we're, we're talking in semantics. I, I absolutely understand what you mean. The reason I, I, res, I reserved about that word, again, that word has kind of begun to mean a sense of escape um, uh -huh, and, a, you know, right. and, and a sense, and that's, you know, in a way, Eastern and, you know, Indian spirituality has become, has lost its teeth in the West and, so when I say lost its teeth, it's become a sense of escaping, a sense of, you know, kind of the rainbows, unicorn. Um, I think what a friend of mine calls spiritual bypass. You know, you, you do something that's about a lovely retreat in an exotic island um, or, or doing, you know, it's got nothing to do with that daily, like I say, about presence, about the ferocity of presence. Or it becomes this fake kind of ferocity, you know, the Kali of the kind of fakeness of, you know, oh my God, here it's dangerous and devilish. And, but it's actually neither. Um, it, there is a real presence, you know, there's a real kind of ferocity of- We have to talk about uh, fierceness then. I, you're using the word and I'm like, please speak to us about fierceness and 
and what that has to do with calling. Uh, I like that you're steering us away from uh, what you kind of sense is uh, more superficial or um, escapist, because I hear that that's not um, in your relationship to this dance. And I also appreciate you talking about your path, having had therapy and what it is, uh, what's needed when we are fractured, because we do go through those times. I think that's so important. Um, and, uh, but what would you say, because I love the word fierceness, that's one of my favorite words, but I, I have a particular relationship to that word, fierce love, or I feel mm -hmm. that I know inside I am fierce and that no one can change my mind on that. And I'm curious what for you that means in your world and your, as a teacher, as a dancer, um, as this very developed being, what, what is that for you? What's so, what's so beautiful about that fierceness, the ferocity? Um, Julie, uh, in, in almost all the ancient goddess traditions, there are two, two drives that I have seen when I've looked at them. And they might have different names in different traditions, but it's ferocity and pleasure. Um, and they are, they are actually two sides of the same coin. They're inseparable. Uh, you can't be ferocious without pleasure and you can't be in pleasure without ferocity. And so sensuality, when I say pleasure, beauty, sensuality, creativity. Um, and when I say ferocity, it's um, groundedness. It's the, it's the weight of the body, you know, connection to the earth. It's the pounding into the earth. Um, and so for me, the two have been completely uh, inextricable from the practice. Um, and ferocity is presence. You, you know, to be present it's impossible to be present if you're not ferocious. You can't be in presence with the rainbows and you know sentimentality. I mean, I, I can I confess I abhor sentimentality, <laughs> uh, and and for me, ferocity is what takes us away from sentimentality. And I think we have really restoried so many of these the ferocity of many of these traditions into sentimentality, and sentimentality takes us away from presence. It takes us away from the mud. You know, the goddess, the, the greatest symbol of the uh, goddess is the lotus. And the, it's, it is so because the lotus grows in the swamp, in the mud. And that's, that's what ferocity is for me. The, the dirt and the mud, um, the chaos, the ambiguity, the unknown, uh, that which doesn't have labels. And then out of that, the pleasure is the lotus, you know, the sensuality, the creativity, the beauty. Um, and this pleasure has nothing whatsoever to do with being in service. And, and this, is, this is where the divine feminine has been hijacked um, because we now as women, particularly when I work with women, I can tell you more difficult than ferocity for women is pleasure. And, and it's because women's pleasure sensuality has been so mediated, has been so in service for centuries that the idea that pleasure is something intrinsic to our consciousness, it's intrinsic to our divinity, um, and that it, it, is not, it is something that is, again, completely independent. It doesn't have anything to do with anything outside of us. Um, it's not dependent even on the um, on, you know, um, on pleasing our senses. It's something totally outside of all that and within us. 
So this, and that is ferocity too. To experience pleasure in that way, you also need to be ferocious. So there's such an overlap between the two. And in fact, in the tradition, dance tradition that I do, part of the preparatory ritual is the practice of ferocity and pleasure and how the two then become the one thing. And this is possible only through the body. Because when I say that, even the mind is going, how is that possible? But through the body, you actually come to a language where the two are in the same moment. That's such a strong, beautiful statement about the even more difficult for women than the ferocity or uh, fierceness is pleasure. Um, I just absolutely love that. And I want to know right now, who are your goddesses that you are particularly close to? You spoke of Kali earlier and the the blackness and all that came and that um, limitless kind of possibilities in that moment. Who are you close to right now? Um, I, it, it depends. I've found different goddesses appear and it depends on what's happening in my life. Also what's happening in the world. Sure. In my teaching, in my teaching, I really find that the goddesses that appear very much connected to the group of women that will be gathering together. If it's a group class, um, if it's an individual, again, the goddesses that will appear will, will have something to do with the two of us in the practice. So this is also something that when I practice with another woman, I am practicing with with her. It's not that I'm just simply there and the goddess is only relevant to her. Absolutely not. The, the goddess is living and unfolding for me as she is for her. And this is the incredible, um, what can I say, aliveness of the practice. Uh, and and so the goddesses I'm working with now, um, it, it, I just finished a group course on Matangi. She's a very ancient goddess of the forest. And there was something absolutely alive and relevant because um, we are we're living in many parts of the world. We are living in lockdowns at the moment. And this idea of this exiled goddess who finds fullness in the forest of that exile was some, so poignant. And you know, almost every woman in the class was speaking about how intimately she was relevant to each one of them. I'm also practicing goddesses like Saraswati and um, uh, Chinnamasta, who is a very ferocious form of Kali with one of the women that I'm uh, doing individual program with. And each one of them is relevant, not only for the women I'm practicing with, but something about the energy of the times. They hold a teaching for me that is at once universal, at once intimate for me and for the women in completely different ways in the same moment. And this is the incredible, uh, it's, it's what is incredible about this goddess tradition is that none of these things are exclusive. You know, it, you can be universal exactly the same moment across multiple people. Uh, this is this is possible. Now I have to say, you said uh, two things I want to do. First off is I want to get the name again, if you could spell it for us, the goddess of the forest, because I missed it. Her name is Matangi. Matangi. Ma- Mat- Ma- Matangi. So M-A-T-A-N-G-I, Matangi, the goddess. Matangi. Yeah. Thank you, because I she is very relevant now. The other is, 
Uh, you spoke something when we first talked and you're approaching it right now about the universal and the personal. What is that relationship that you see in terms of, I think you said something, the more universal we go, the more personal we go, or what, there was something that you were speaking to me about that and that connection between the personal and universal inherent somehow in this goddess dance. Yes. So the, the ancient goddess tradition didn't have texts. It wasn't philosophy texts. And that's one of the reasons why they got totally uh, devalued when we, you know, when textual traditions became more important and as they are in our times. Um, how, how was truth? How did, how did we experience truth? We experienced truth through our bodies as visceral, intimate experiences. And this happens every, every time I practice with women. Um, like I said, when I'm practicing with women in the groups, but much more powerfully when I'm practicing with women individually, for each one of them, the, their teaching is, is not something that there is a template. So I, it's not a philosophical text which tells you, here are the truths. But for let me just illustrate with an example, because sometimes it's difficult to speak about these things. So one of the women sure. that I'm working with, um, her goddess was Dhumavati, which is, again, another ancient goddess. And as, as uh, one of the aspects of the goddess that came up was this particular um, deity called Jeshta, again, another ancient deity. So when I had an intuition to bring her into the practice, I trust it. And I brought that practice in, in, into work when I was working with this woman. And after that, she said to me that it was an absolutely important practice for her because Jeshta is about our intimate relationships. It's about relationships between families, siblings, and um, partners. And she said there was something in the practice that really brought home to her viscerally that the nature of attachment has nothing to do with changing anything outside, but it has, it has something completely to do with an inner shift. And that was her personal truth. I didn't know she needed that teaching. She didn't know she needed that teaching, but it was absolutely important and relevant for her at that time in her life. But that is also a universal truth. The, the universal truth is that you don't change your sensation of attachment by changing things outside. It is something that changes from within you. So this, this, you know, it becomes a truth only when you experience it viscerally. If I said that to you, it's a lovely thing to hear. But if, when you feel it, if that's the truth you need in your life, it comes to you as an intimate experience. But it is also universal. And this you. is the nature. Oh, it's yeah. beautiful. I have to tell you, my ferocity really appreciates your ferocity. It just, you are right there. Uh, and I love it. I love how you will not go to sentimentality. Uh, you are going all the way, all the way in. Um, and, and we're going to have to complete here in a couple of minutes. It, is your, how, is this dance, how much do you dance on your own without teaching at this point? I know that can be uh, a real question when you're spending a lot of time teaching and helping others. Do you, is there still a personal dance experience that you have when no one's in the room or? Uh, yes, absolutely. Every day. Um, I, I do dance every day. I mean, having said that, for me, every practice I do is also my practice. So every teaching, every course, I do it and I, and I do it because it's, it's also my practice whenever I work with women. 
it's also my practice. So there is no separation for me from uh, the teaching and my own practice, but I also do my own practice every day. I have a little um, studio in my house, which is my cave, because these practices were done in caves in ancient times. It's actually really like a womb. It's in the middle of the house and it's uh, completely dark. I can make it dark. So I go in there and, you know, I light a few lamps and I'm in the cave of of my own practice um, every day as well. I mean, of course, there are days when, you know, my, I mean, all of us are human and my mind gets in the way and um, I, I don't do the practice. And I'm not, you know, it, the thing with the goddess is you, you just flow with that. You flow with that and you accept that, again, there is no template. When those days happen, that's fine. I just get back to it the next day. So there's a beautiful flow in this goddess practice. It's not rigidity. It's not goal-oriented. No, I get it. Uh, And also, but I love picturing you to complete here. I love picturing you in the middle of the house in this dark room with the lamps on. I mean, with the candles at the lamps. I just, and again, that the beautiful image of the cave um, and the mouth of the cave and where language uh, doesn't enter and all of it. You have completely enticed me a hundred (laughs) percent and probably anyone else listening to this. So thank you, Padma. Um, And what creativity to me all the way through it. I hear the essence almost like what precedes creativity uh, in what you speak. So thank you. I I can't thank you enough for joining me in this conversation. We're going to put in the liner notes connections to your uh, different ways that you work with people, your individual and your group classes and anything else uh, that you want to put in there that you've touched on today or anything else. So thank you, Padma Menon, for joining me today. Thank you, Julie. It's absolutely been an honor and pleasure. And thank you so much for your compassion and the connection that you make. It's very precious. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, Until next time. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's today's podcast of Creative at the Wheel. Before we go, I want to invite you to check out my ongoing Friday online gathering, The Creative Cure for Anxious Times where for 75 minutes each Friday, we follow our intuition and play with pen, paper, paint, whatever creative materials you have on hand as a way of coming back into alignment with life and the moment. It's very healing and a whole lot of fun. You can also learn more about my one-on-one coaching with creatives, both on my website, paintbiglivebig.com.